Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Morning, church. It's good to see all of you this morning. I'm so thankful that you're here. I hope that this morning the, the Word of God will be an encouragement to you. Happy Palm Sunday. This is a wonderful week that we're getting into. Uh, it's, it's so interesting as we dig into the week to look at again one of the historical weeks where the Bible takes the biggest zoom in of all. So I would encourage you this week, go into the Gospels and look at just how clear uh, all four Gospels get into the, the, the final the triumphal week of Jesus. That every day what he's up to, healing, teaching in the temple, and the most important of all, the payment on the cross, but then rising again next Sunday. So happy Palm Sunday. And what's interesting to me about this whole thing, what's interesting is this thing we call the triumphal entry at the time looked anything but. And, and, and in some ways, kings would, would, would ride in on donkeys from time to time, but it's not what you expect for the king of kings. If Jesus is indeed, which I believe he is, the king of kings, Lord of lords, the son of God, it's interesting that he rides in on a donkey. Not a horse, not with an army, but a bunch of guys that would soon, soon not walk so closely with him because of the, the fear of it all. And so here we have the triumph, if you will, as I've titled my sermon today, Triumph in Weakness. And you might think I'm going to take a little pause from Judges. No, I'm not. I'm going to jump into Judges 7 today. Now next week, if, if you want, uh, we're going to take a break just for a week and hop into uh, the Easter sermon, and I don't want to miss that. So Judges chapter 8 just doesn't fit Easter too well, so I'm going to take a little break. But this week, I really felt that what Gideon's dealing with in Judges 7 is so much like the Savior's dealing with on Palm Sunday. And what's curious to me is that as Christ rides in 2,000 years ago through the eastern gate into Jerusalem with, with, with kids and adults alike waving palm branches singing, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that this answers all these prophecies. And, and Matthew writes in chapter 21, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He comes humbly... And he comes to die. This is an interesting triumph, you must admit. Christ's triumphal entry is anything but triumphant. And the religious leaders immediately began saying to him, this is in, in the book of Luke, Rabbi, rebuke, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Rebuke the people, they said. And Jesus said the stones would cry out if they didn't. By the end of the week, we're going to finally understand, and what we already understand as a church is what kind of triumph this was. And that's what we're going to see in Judges chapter 7, is this isn't the kind of triumph that a human might expect. It's the kind of triumph that God does. The kind of triumph that we really should long for, the better triumph, the bigger deal. Because what we might want might seem big at the time, but if we would just admit our faults, admit our weaknesses, and see where God can stir in the midst of where we struggle, God will make an even more amazing, a more triumphant victory that will glorify Him and not us. And that's really what we're hungry for. And so for many of us, I have to admit, myself included, admitting weakness is not something we enjoy. <laughs> admitting faults, understanding where we're where we have shortcomings. This goes against our very 
nature. We, we value strength. We, we value influence. If you just, just look at the culture, just look at the way you look at things, in fact, just, just pay attention. What we really value are strong things, wealthy things, possessions, beauty. What we tend to not care as much about is weakness. None of us wants to be weak at anything. We, want, we would like so very much to be good at everything. That would be awesome. And we don't, think, we, we don't think that weakness is to our advantage at all. We certainly have difficulty with humility. The idea of being downtrodden or impoverished, none of us wants that. And yet, I'm going to make a statement to you. I think it's possible to be too big, too rich, too full of yourself to see God move. However, the opposite doesn't tend to be as true. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from some of the men I was studying this week. Uh, Pastor Skip Heitzig, he said, We rarely think that bigness of size is a hindrance to the work of God. We see small things as a hindrance to God's work. But when things are large, resources are abundant, and there's lots of people, it's often harder to trust God. And I love how Gary Enrig put it, You cannot be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. I think that's been true in my life. I don't know about, I can't speak towards yours, but our our human default is to trust ourselves. And the more powerful we are, the stronger we are, the more we don't suffer, the more we think we've got it all together, the more we have difficulty trusting anyone, much less the Savior. And His desire for us, frankly, is that we would lean on Him. His greatest desire for us is that we would glorify Him, that we would hunger for Him, and I'm thankful that God might allow me to be low at times so that I won't forget Him. What grace is that? That might not seem like mercy to you, but that's mercy, my friend. That he would allow us to have struggles that we might see him through them. In chapter 7 of Judges, this is the very lesson that the Lord is teaching both Gideon and the people. And we're going to see that clearly right off the bat. So what's the big principle? How do we trust him? We can learn to put all of our trust in the Lord, whether we're We're in a a mountaintop experience. Some of you have come in today. Things are going really well. You just got that promotion. Something's going right in your life. Uh, uh, Your marriage is doing pretty good. Your kids aren't totally destroying your house lately. This stuff is not bad. And yet, for some of us coming in here, we're struggling with a lot of variety of pain. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's something's not going right in our household. Something's off in a relationship No matter how you've come here today, the same lesson applies. We can put all of our trust in Jesus. All of our trust in Him. The text, I believe, will give us three lessons on putting that trust. So let's dig in. We're in Judges 7. We're going to read this chapter together today, but we're going to take it in a couple of bites. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, Then Jerobel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped inside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. Don't miss this, church. Look what the Lord says in verse 2. The people with you are too many. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Now this is an interesting test. Verse 4, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. (laughs) A third of them left. They're still too much. 
or two-thirds of them left, I should say. Take them down now to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, they shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink... And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. But retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Let's pause there for a moment. The first lesson on trusting God, and this one's the most key. you got to get this one, or you can't really get the rest. God's power is revealed in weakness. His power is revealed in weakness. This is kind of obvious, although I know this is a hard point to hear, but it's obvious if you'll think about it. If you're powerful, it's hard to see anything else as matching your power. It's hard for you to think that anything could dethrone you since you're strong. And yet that's the very thing. Now, I, I want to pause for a moment and note, and note that several times here God says you are too many. Now, God's idea of too many is somewhat strange. Uh, you can go ahead and pop up this image. This is kind of where we are in, in the battlefield. This is what the nation of Israel looks like. And we're in the northern part of it. And just so you know, below them, if you, we're going to get into this next time we get into Judges chapter 8, but there's 135,000 men of the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the eastern, uh, east of the Jordan armies. So 135,000. So when, when he first shows up, he's got 32,000 men. Now, I don't know about you, but that's already a mismatch. That's, that's not good odds. Uh, our army would not go to war, 32,000 versus 135,000. And yet God says something strange. You're too many. You ever been in a season like that? I mean, this isn't the point of the sermon, but you ever look at the situation and go, God, how are you saying I'm strong here? Because when I look at it, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough energy. What are you talking about, God? He said, I'm going to bring you a little lower so that you can really see me show up. I really want you to, to give the glory to me. I am the Heavenly Father. This is the very reason he says this in verse 2 and 3. He says, you are too many. And what that means is you will boast in your own abilities. You're going to boast in yourself. And don't think you're above that, my friends. There's some things in this life you think you've, you've got it. That's just a fact. There's just Maybe for some of you it's only a handful of things, but there's a couple of things you think, if I can do anything well, it's this. It's this thing. And those will be the spots, I kid you not, those will be the spots that God will say, okay, we'll see. We'll see if you think you're strong in every area. I'll tell you a really weird one for me. I, I, I was a, a pastor's kid. I'm, well, I'm still a pastor's kid, I guess, if you will. But I, I grew up a, a PK, and sometimes that doesn't work out so well. But in my life, uh, I, I felt the call to ministry early in life. And I took a job right out of seminary, and I thought, here's what I thought, and this is crazy. I thought, if, any, if I can do anything well, it's church work. So I've lived church work my whole life. You know what I did within one year, just so you know? <laughs> Welcome to church, y'all. 
I got fired after one year as an assistant pastor in Greenville, North Carolina. Woohoo! That was a shaker. You know what that taught me? I'm not strong. I'm not the, I'm not the hero of my story. I'm never going to be the hero. Jonathan's not the hero. And some of you look in the mirror and go, but that, makes, that hurts my feelings. No, it finally fixed something in me that was broke. And he's still fixing a lot of broke stuff. But I came into planning this church, and I think it's what's given us, it's certainly given me perseverance is to say, I'm not the hero of this church. I'm not the hero of this story. And I'm a, really, I'm a broken man, and I'm thankful God has given me the opportunity. But here's what I know. God is the hero, and all I can do well is lift him high. All I can do well is make his name known. And so God says, you are too many. And then after he dwindles them down to 10,000, that's not good odds. 10,000 to 135,000, this doesn't make sense. He says, you're still too many. And I'm going to separate you big time. 9,700 are going to walk away simply because they got down and drank water. Like on their all fours and got down and drank water. And the other guys got on their knee and scooped it with their hands. Now, some, I've heard some preachers talk about this and say, well, those 300, you know, they were more circumspect. And you know that I don't I don't see that there. I think God just said, I've got a way to really thin the herd. Not too many people are going to get down there and drink like this. If we're honest, this is kind of hard, because if you've ever noticed, like water goes through your little fingies, you're like, eh. so the 9700 guys make a lot of sense to me. They were actually drinking. God says, I'm going to thin the herd. Why? So that I can show you something. So that I can show, show you something you wouldn't see without me. I want you to boast in the Lord. I want you to see that the Lord has saved. Isn't that the story of the gospel? Isn't that the story of Jesus at, at the end of the day? Is I'm going to show you something that doesn't make a lot of sense. That in, in my weakness I will be made strong. That in the midst of my greatest suffering. As Jesus would, would suffer on the cross. Right in the midst of that. That's how he saves us. That's amazing to me. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians to describe this, this boasting. Rather boasting in ourselves, boast only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He has brought us together, broken people from many different walks of life. Some of us with great deals, great deal of hurt in our past and has made us made us wise through his holiness and given us something that's worth boasting about. You know what? He's made us for worship. What God has never said is, you know what? I don't want you guys to boast in anything. No, he's, I want you to boast in the right things. I want you to understand what worship really is. Paul, Paul t- again uses this lesson to describe God's power being made perfect in weakness. I, I used this verse a few weeks ago, but it, it stands to repeat. 2 Corinthians 12, it says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. you got to admit, the Christian approach is just different. To say, I will... What is he boasting in? weaknesses. 
what? We don't do that. (laughs) We don't do that as human beings. And yet Paul says, I see where I'm really struggling, and that's where God is showing up in a powerful way. I see where I'm really not not the best at at this or that. Those are those places God can use me. We, we like to have this argument, if you go anywhere on like, I don't know, if you go on Facebook or any social media platform, you'll hear from time to time these, these talks of who's the greatest. I feel like every time I get on there and during basketball season, there's somebody saying, is it LeBron? Is it MJ? And uh, I'm just going to settle that right now. It's MJ. It's always going to be Michael Jordan. <laughs> um, he's the man. And... Uh, <laughs> But we have these conversations. Who's the greatest boxer? Is it Ali? Is it someone else? Is it? And we have these discussions again. Who's the greatest uh, president? We have these discussions. Who's the greatest politician? Who's the greatest warrior of all time? We just we we really care about that. We make movies about stuff like this. We it's all in our culture. And yet, when Jesus is asked a question like this, he gives an answer that makes absolutely no sense to us. He, he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18. You want to be the goat? You want to be the greatest of all time? Be like a little kid. Okay. I didn't see that coming, Jesus. That the greatest thing I can do is have the faith of a child. The kind of faith that doesn't disbelieve in miracles. The kind of faith that actually can... Think of the impossible. It's like we get older and we go, this isn't, none of this is likely. None of this is possible. How could God, how could he do it? And a child doesn't struggle that way. A child actually thinks that mom and dad can do anything. It's, it's, a, it's a great destruction of their, whole, of their whole outlook when they finally realize, you know what? Dad is not a superhero. Mine have learned that pretty quickly. Uh, I don't know about mom. Maybe she's still a superhero to them. My body is depreciating very fast. I've been a little too hard on it. And so they're starting to learn this. But we as adults need to get back this childlike faith that says God can do it. And he can show up in the midst of our weakness and he has the power to overcome it. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, you want to know who the greatest is? The greatest is those who serve. The greatest is the least of these. The greatest is those with childlike faith, with the kind of faith that believes in the miraculous. And and it takes us getting to that place and saying, I I don't know what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom because that's not even the right question because the greatest in the kingdom is Christ Jesus. And I just want to make his name known. You want to know what it means to trust him? Well, he might reduce the size of your army sometimes. And rather than look at that and go, God, oh God, oh God, why? I thought I was living right. I thought I was doing well. Maybe he's doing this for your sake. Maybe it's actually to show something great off. Sometimes he reduces your health, your job, your finances, their struggles in your family. But through trust, it grows your faith and strengthens your witness. Strengthens your witness. Let's continue in Judges chapter 7. God's not done with a little Gideon. Verse 9, it says, That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down into the camp, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. <laughs> and, the, and the Midianites... 
And the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number. As the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. He said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread it tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Now, I don't know about you, that dream makes no sense to me. But verse 14, God gives the interpretation to the enemy. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Wow. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of that dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshipped. And he returned to the camp and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Here's the second The second lesson in learning to trust God is that God's encouragement is found in word and worship. His encouragement is found in word and worship. In verse 10, he's first, or excuse me, verse 9, he's first told Gideon to go down. This this isn't two different, or this isn't just one occasion. He's saying, first, if you're ready, take your 300 men down there. I've given them into your hand. God's ready to move immediately, but he says, but if you're afraid, Gideon, now we don't see Gideon say anything here. We don't see him asking for a sign. If you were with us last week, Gideon was struggling with his faith and asked for a whole bunch of signs. Here, God shows him an extra amount of mercy in that. I know know Gideon's heart. I know that little dude wants a sign. I'm going to go ahead and preempt that. Gideon, if you're afraid, you can go ahead and go down there, and I'm going to give you a weird sign. Buckle up, buttercup. You're not ready for this sign. Go on down into that camp. If you're feeling a little afraid, take Pura because I know you're such a coward. You need a buddy, so bring your buddy. God's going to really use Gideon in this whole process. He's building his faith as he's building the glory that the people will celebrate. But here comes Gideon, and he comes down here and Oh, I had this dream he hears from the enemy. These are the enemies talking. I had this dream that bread is rolled into the camp and it knocked the whole tent over. And any of us would thought, you need more sleep, bro. Like that doesn't make any sense. Are you hungry? You're dreaming about giant barley breads. If I'm dreaming like that, I probably need to eat something. But this guy gives this crazy interpretation. There's no missing it. Gideon doesn't miss it. This is from the Lord. That your enemies would give you strength. That your enemies would give you encouragement. That this comrade would turn to his friend and say, I think Gideon's going to put the whoop on us. I think that's what the barley bread's about. I I didn't see that, but but, but I guess. We probably should leave, don't you think? We should probably get out of here. I don't know. Let's stick around and see what happens. God's encouragement is found in the words of the enemies sometimes. But you know what? It's absolutely found here. This encourages me, this very story that I'm sitting in right now, it encourages me that God cares when I'm afraid. God cares that I don't have the strength to get through. God cares that, and he already knows. He would say just as easily to me, Jonathan, but if you're afraid, I got another word here for you. And Gideon's response tells the story he worships. I want to tell you something this morning. That one of the greatest things you can do when you face your day, one of the greatest things you, you can do before you face the battle is go ahead and worship. 
Before he even goes down to face the Midianites, before he even goes down to see what the Lord's going to do, he goes ahead and worships. He's worshiping first because he knows what God is up to. He has seen God has given him a clear calling. And a lot of you have, given, have been given that, a clear calling of what to do in life. At a bare minimum, you've been given a clear push towards what he's wanting for you. And, and, and now he's saying, don't be afraid. And I know what you've got to face. I know there's a battle ahead. Some of you have great conflicts ahead. So many of the men of faith, the women of faith in the in the hall of fame here, <laughs> they worship first. It changes the heart. Some of you are starting your day with gangster rap. It's not working out too well, is it? You go to work angry and you can't figure out why. I got a news for you. I got an answer. That stuff makes me angry. I'm not above it. Maybe, maybe a little worship today to start your day. Maybe start your day in praise. It's funny what God can do when you start your day in praise. You start to look at things the way he looks at them. You stop seeing them in the negative all the time. Some of you are some real negative Nancys in here. Start your day with praise. People are really, really not understanding why it is that you claim to be a Christian and you are just the most pessimistic downer person they've ever met. I can tell you right now, no one wants to come to that faith. If that's what it means to be in faith, then I'm going to be down all the time. I don't want that joyless religion. That is not Christianity. We start our day in praise. Why? Because he's already done it. The victory has already happened. We're not even doing what Gideon did. He's already won the battle. So Gideon, yeah, he hasn't gone down the hill yet, but for us, Christ has already taken the hill. And it's over. So what are we so mad about? Why are we so offended? Why are we so sad all the time? Eternity is a really long time. It actually blows my mind when I think about it. I can't get my head around timelessness. And yet that is what he has promised me through the person of Jesus Christ. So i got to stop looking at today and going, wow, my life's just the worst. No, it isn't. He has saved me. <laughs> and not because of my own greatness, but because of his. He says, your hands will be strengthened. And Gideon's were strengthened. Verse, verse 13, he was given a dream. Verse 15, Gideon worships. Start your day with the word and with praise. We find encouragement there. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 15. He says, Forever, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The encouragement of the Scriptures. We find encouragement in worship. The psalmist writes in chapter 138, Psalm 138, I bow before your holy temple. As I worship, I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. What would that look like to start your day in praise? What would that look like? It would change everything. Have you learned to find God's encouragement in the only places where they actually are? Some of you are very willing to go talk to others. I know these people that I think they'll build me up. I've got these yes men in my life. If I go and tell them my problem, they'll say, you can do it, buddy. Everything's good. Those aren't your best friends. They may be. They may be really trying to help, but you need some, you need some friends that'll give you the hard truth, and they're in here. There's 66 of them in here, and sometimes you'll look and go, oh, I see why I'm having a problem. I'm broke. There's something wrong with me. And God says, I need, I need Jesus. 
I need, to, I need to shift my thinking. I need to behave differently. I need to start my day in praise. I want some real friends that will tell me the hard truth and with love. Have you learned to find God's encouragement where it actually lies in Scripture and in praise and in the fellowship of believers? You're in the right place today. It's a good start to the week. This is a place to find encouragement. Let's finish up this, this chapter together. It gets interesting from here. It's already been pretty intriguing, but this is wild. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies. So the 300 are now three companies of 100 against 135,000. That didn't make sense to me, but here we go. And what does he do with them? He puts trumpets into their hands, in the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So let me send my 300 men in there. Y'all go ahead and sheathe your swords. You're not going to need them. I'm confused. I'm going to want you to go ahead and put your trumpet here in the, in, the, in the right hand. Okay, I'm ready for that. We're not talking one of these. It's not brass instruments here. We're not going... This is like one of those shafar kind of deals. This is like one of those ram's horns. These things are, are really loud if you've never heard them, if you know what you're doing. So I've got this thing, and I've got a jar and a torch, a lit torch with a jar over it. Okay, here we go. This is, this is a plan, y'all. This is the greatest military strategy I've ever heard. No swords. We're going to go in there and make a lot of racket. Okay, let's do that. These are some brave 300. You've got to give them that. Verse 17, he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men... And the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just so you know, the middle watch is between two or 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So we're somewhere around 10 p.m. Then the three companies, verse 20, excuse me, let me go back. So the middle watch, when they had just set at that watch, and they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They, they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. Just stood there. And all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Abel Mahalah by Tabath. And the men of, of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued, pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah. And also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. And they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah. And also the Jordan. There they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. I think those were named after the fact, just so you know. Then they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. <laughs> we finish chapter 7 together. And here's what lesson we learn at the end. Is that God's victory is won in obedient faith. 
God's victory is won in obedient faith, not by strength of sword, not by strength of might, not by intelligence, because this is foolish at, at face value. This makes no sense. It's obedient faith that wins the victory, because God is the one who wins it. Here they come with trumpets, torches, and jars. I think what they're looking at here is they've got this jar on top of the torch, and they came in, and they, as they're blowing the trumpet, they break the pot. And so at simultaneously, the people of Midian and Amalek and these, these, this, mini, this great army, they see a bright light suddenly, and they hear a loud trumpet. And it would be baffling if half of them are sleeping, a lot of them are going to sleep. All of a sudden, a big ringing alarm clock and a bright blast of light. They assumed at that moment, wow, we've been completely surrounded. We're in trouble. What makes them begin to attack one another is I think maybe what's happened here already is Midian and Amalek, they don't work together typically. And so they're looking around going, I don't recognize anybody. Let me just start swinging. And they start wiping each other out. Why? Because God. Not because Gideon and the Israelites did some fascinating thing. They did some miraculous. No, this is insane what they did and it worked. Because God did it. God sets every man. God pushes the enemy all the way out of their country. Back to the Jordan. Across the Jordan. Now people are joining in. That's how this story ends. Is now Gideon saying, look, look what the Lord has done. He has, pushed, he has pushed our enemies away. Now everybody come in. Join into the battle. And God honors that. It is our obedient faith that brings victory. This lesson is still true. It's the lesson of many stories throughout Scripture. It's the absolute main lesson of victory, God's victory in your life. How does God have real victory in your life? Obedient faith. Obedient faith. And that's not a really a popular thing to say. We like the word faith. We like that piece. It's that obedient word we don't love so much. But that's the Christian community we've been called to. In fact, Jesus says himself at some points, why, why do you say you're one of mine and you don't obey the words that I speak? Why do you, why do you claim to be mine and you don't do what I ask? You don't, you don't do what I instruct? And That's because our faith in Christ Jesus comes with obedience. 1 John chapter 5, it says, We show our love for God by obeying His commandments, and they are not hard to follow. Every child of God can defeat the world, for our faith is what gives us this victory. No one can defeat the world without having faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Passion Week. I would encourage you this week, church, to get into the Gospels, specifically looking at the week of Passion. Here we have Jesus coming in humble and riding on a donkey. Not your normal hero story. Even more surprising, we have to admit, is how that story ends. Is that Thursday night, we'll be here celebrating Monday, Thursday together. And I'll, I'll probably do the Tin and Bray service again, which is it's this idea of doing a service with the extinguishing of lights. And I would encourage you to come. But what we're trying to do that night is get a picture of what it was like Thursday night, some thousands of years ago, at the Lord's Supper and Jesus gets betrayed. <laughs> this, is a, this is a hard hero story. He comes in. On a donkey, some of the people don't receive him. And then the very night where they're having the Passover meal, one of his 12, one of those he's poured out, turns on him, betrays him. That very night, he's out praying and the disciples can't even stay awake. And that's you and I, friends. That's you and I. It's not your typical hero story. And then Friday, he's, 
He's nailed to a cross. He's beaten within an inch of his life and nailed to the cross and killed. I can't think of many hero stories like that. That's very strange. How did he win? We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. Because the resurrection points to the victory. The victory is what he did on the cross, but we needed the resurrection to prove it. And it did so. This hero story, this is where we put our obedient faith. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what you're struggling with right now, but I got news for you. There's only one thing that really matters. It's an obedient faith in Christ Jesus. I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but this piece is a must. It's the most important thing we can do. God gave Gideon these unlikely implements of victory. He gives him trumpets, torches, and jars. But I would argue even more humbly than Gideon's story is the bread, the cup, the cross, the tomb. These are strange hero stories. And yet he won the greatest victory of all time. The thing we will celebrate for all of eternity. That's heaven, my friends. That's what we celebrate. That God, I'm here because Jesus. I'm here because of you. And I'm never going to get tired of saying it. I'm never going to get tired of worshiping it. That's heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this is encouraging to you today. <laughs> this third lesson on trusting God is that God's victory is won through this wild thing, our obedient faith. Not through our strength, not through our intellect, not through what we can do for Him, but that we would say yes. And we would lean into that. I love what missionary William Carey once quoted. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's the kind of life we can now live with a sense of peace, a sense of joy, no matter what we're facing, knowing that at the end of the day, God has done it. The victory is in Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate week in and every year this week of passion that Jesus has done it. And we never get tired. That's why we worship every Sunday. These same stories come back and back and back. And why we do the Lord's Supper every week together so that we would not possibly forget that Christ Jesus has won the victory. And I pray that gives you peace today and encouragement. And whatever you're facing, know this, he's already won. Will you learn the lessons that, taught, that God taught Gideon and is now teaching us to trust him? That his power is revealed in our very weak spots. Those weakest moments, God's can show up. God's encouragement's found in word and in worship. And his victory is won in obedient faith. Let's pray now together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. That you are a God of all, all-encompassing love and all-powerful grace. That you are the kind of God who didn't just create, but also saved. You could have left us where we were. <laughs> you could have wiped your hands of it and said, well, I, did, I botched that one. You could have moved on and said, those people, they've turned from me. Instead of that, though, we get what we can celebrate Every year at about this time, the week of passion, that God, you did it. Just like you did for Gideon, but even better. Even better than the original 300 story, God. Even better than that. 
You saved us by sending your son Jesus for us. And sacrificing yourself for us, we couldn't do it. There was nothing we could do to answer the problem. And all of us know it. In our heart of hearts, we look at our story and go, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong in this world. And it needs repair. And I'm not the man to do it. And yet Jesus was. That's why we celebrate. That's why, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for you. And we'll never tire of worshiping you. I'm thankful, God, that you give us a glimpse of heaven now. That church is that small glimpse. That our Christian fellowship, our, our, our attempts at worship, our, our praise. <laughs> All of this is preparation for eternity. Where we will praise you forever. Because we're only in that place because of what you did, Lord. I pray now over your people. I recognize, even as I'm thinking about your people who are here today, that they've come in with many different, many varieties of, of pain, struggle, weakness. They, they've, there's, there's sickness in this place. There's bad health in here. There's old age. There's breaking down bodies. There's bad budgets. Some people have showed up today and they don't know how they're going to pay the bills next week. There's some people today who've come into church and it feels like their marriage is on the last leg. They're not sure if their kids are going to ever come home or speak to them again. There's people in this building right now that are in such disarray and, and anxiety and brokenness. and I am many of those things. And yet, God, here's what I know. You've already won the victory. And in my weakness, that's where you show up with power. So I'll lay that at your feet right now. I would encourage you, church, whatever that is you've brought in here today, lay that at his feet right now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I recognize where I'm weak. <laughs> I recognize where I doubt. I recognize where I'm struggling, God, and I need you so desperately in those places. And I'm thankful in one sense, God, that I've never gotten so prideful that I wouldn't see you. And I know there's times where you humble me on purpose. And as crazy as it sounds, Jesus, I'm thankful for that. Because I don't want to miss sight or lose sight that, God, you're the hero of this story, not me. Dear friend, if you've come today and you've been trying to be the hero of your story, but you're recognizing in this moment, you know, it's Jesus. And I desperately need him. I need that obedient faith in my life. I need salvation. If that's you today... You've been putting that off. There's no reason to wait any longer. You can pray a simple prayer of confession with me and begin your, your, your journey of obedient faith in Jesus. You can begin it today. And I would encourage you, the, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that's you today, pray simply with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm, I'm a broken person. I know that I've sinned and I've made mistakes, but God, today, Jesus, today, I believe. I put my faith in you that you died on the cross for my sins, for my sake. I believe that today and you paid that ultimate price for me. And God, I believe also that you raised Jesus from the dead. I stake my faith in that today. Lord Jesus, I believe you saved me. You set me free. And I'm asking now, God, would you give me the strength would you give me the energy to follow you in obedient faith? That the places you tell me to go, the way in which you instruct me to live, that I would have the, the, the strength and the courage to follow you. 
Do that in all of us, Lord Jesus. In this church, let us be a representation of obedient faith to our communities. That people would know what it really looks like to follow Jesus. That there's joy in the midst of of weakness. That there's peace, peace in the midst of trial. That God, you comfort us in spite of our pain. God, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.